Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you today. My task today was to talk about the second part of our series of Being with Jesus, which was to talk about ways of reading the Bible. And that is why I prepared, that is what I spent a week or so putting together and meditating on and praying about and writing up my sermon. And then God prompted me over the last 48 hours to actually talk about something slightly different. So I feel I kind of need to apologize um, and ask your permission to do that, if that is okay today. But what I have done to try and, to try and make it work is that um, normally you get a handout from Nigel if he's preaching, which has got a few bullet points, and then he gives you your, the entire sermon. I've gone the opposite way around today. I have typed out the entire sermon that I would have given, and it's going to be distributed amongst you to take away and take home. Um, <laughs> What I thought I would do is just, just to um, make sure that we don't get so out of joy in the, service, in, in, in the series of being with Jesus, I thought I would give you a, a five-minute condensed version. Does that sound good? You don't sound very enthusiastic about that. A, f- a five-minute sermon, and then I'll share something else. Um, so uh, as those sheets are going around, I'll, I'll start to do that. Uh, and uh, all the, the slides will be on the sheet, but they're very, very small, and they're not in color because I didn't want to bankrupt the church through photocopying costs. Um, so I've got, uh, got the sermon down to one page, two sides, and uh, you can follow that on there, take it home with you. But what I will do is I'll, just, I'll, I'll run through what I was going to share this morning in a kind of a, a briefer version. And you might say amen at the end and hope that all sermons are five minutes long. Um, so I was going to do two things. I was going to talk about, first of all, what does it mean to be with Jesus? And how do we read the Bible as we be with Jesus? And so I was going to start by talking about the disciples. And uh, these were the people that Jesus chose to be with him. They were the people who saw his miracles, who saw his teaching, who spent time alone with him in a way that no one else did. And therefore, if we want to find out what it's like to be with Jesus, we should look at them and we should look at what they have told other people and what they have written down themselves in the New Testament. And that's how we've had the Bible uh, with the New Testament to us in the first place. And Jesus had this group of uh, followers, and then he called some to be his disciples. There's a distinction between followers of Jesus, the crowd, and his disciples, the people he spent time alone with. And within that group of disciples, there was an even inner circle of 12 disciples that we all know very well, probably, from uh, what the Bible tells us. And within that 12 inner disciples, there's an inner, inner circle of three that he spent even more time with, James, John, and Peter. And so they are the people that we should look to, to see what it means to be with Jesus. It says in Mark, Jesus went up a mountainside and called to him those that he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, designated them apostles. That means sent ones. They were his disciples. He appointed them that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So he called them to be with him, and they would send them out to preach. It's a very long quote, which I won't read all of, but it says, if we were to find 12 individuals to undertake the tremendous responsibilities and world-changing mission that Jesus had in mind, it is unlikely we would have chosen any of those 12. Seven of them were likely fishermen. None of them were particularly um, intellectual or, or great people. They didn't have fantastic jobs. In fact, most of them had probably been passed over at a young age for rabbinical teaching. And that's why they've ended up as fishermen and as laborers and as um, radicals, some of them. And so these people were not what a normal rabbi would have chosen. They weren't the gifted young people of their generation. They'd been passed on. But yet Jesus chose them for the task of transforming the world. Jesus chose them for the task of transforming the world. So I was going to ask you two questions this morning. Do you want to be transformed in such a way that you can be transformational to the world you live in? Do you want to be transformed in such a way that you can be transformational to the world that you live in? And secondly, do you actually like change? Because that's not the same thing. (laughs) I love this little uh, cartoon. I hope you can read it. 
we can get it up there. Is this working? Will, would you do the honours and just flick that on for me? That, that would be wonderful. Little cartoon, little man being interviewed by a couple of other people on a panel. And uh, the quote from the head panellist, the head interviewer is, we're hoping that you'll lead us on a journey of transformation without requiring any real changes. <laughs> I think it's quite typical of many churches that we don't like change, but yet we want to be transformational. So they're not the same thing. So that's what I was going to ask this morning. I was also going to talk about how Jesus talked about his yoke. If you were a rabbi and you had disciples, you yoked them to yourself, just like you would have done with a younger cow or or ox to an older, more mature cow or ox. The idea being is that when the two animals were were mated together with the yoke, the wooden crossbeam, is that they would have journeyed together. And if the younger, less mature um, animal had gone off route, the older, more mature, wiser animal would have had the strength as well to pull it back in a straight direction. And that's what it would be like to be um, yoked to a rabbi. And so this idea of being fishers of men is an idea of being yoked to a rabbi. It's a euphemism for being a rabbi student. So when you're called to be a fisher of men, you're called to be a rabbi's student. And it's much more than being a follower. It's an apprenticeship. It's, uh, we use the word discipleship. It's quite a, quite a christian word, discipleship. But it's, it's a word about being apprenticed to someone over a longer period of time. So you don't just spend a couple of hours a week teaching, listening to Jesus in his presence. They spent their entire lives from that point onwards. For 18 months, two years, three years, however long it was, they spent that length of time being yoked to Jesus. So being with Jesus means becoming like Jesus. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Don't forget those 12 disciples, they did change the world in time with a lot of help from the Spirit and with Jesus' teachings. But they weren't the people you would have chosen to do that in the first place. They themselves were transformed through being like Jesus. The Greek word is metamorphoso, which means to be transformed in outward appearance or inward likeness into something else. The process is also called sanctification, very Christian word. Becoming more and more like Jesus, just water it right down. I was once told by someone that every time I wake up in the morning, I should look more like Jesus that day than I did the day before. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? Do I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? That's what it means, become more and more like Jesus as we journey through life. It's a process. And where Bible reading comes in is that it's a discipline, it's a practice It is training to be more like Jesus. It's one of the disciplines, spiritual disciplines. This is Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. And if I don't put any effort in, I don't get anything out at the end of the day. If I don't put any practice in, I don't actually learn and become more like Jesus. We were at, um, a couple of us were at New Wine last week, which was a, a very wet week. And um, we listened to the teaching of a guy called John Mark Comer. And I recommend that they put all his teachings onto the New Wine website. I recommend you go and have a look. It's great. A lot of this is probably uh, not stolen, borrowed, borrowed from him. Um, and so it would be good to have a look at that if you're really interested. But he talked about transformation being like this. He said, it's not possible, but it is, sorry, it's possible. Transformation is possible, but not inevitable. So you can be transformed, 
but it doesn't mean that you will be transformed. Something has to happen between where I am and where God wants me to be. And that is training in the practices of the way of Jesus. Things like reading the Bible, things like um, prayer, fasting, being his presence, worshipping him. It's a little bit like running a marathon. So hands up all those who've run a marathon in the room. No, I haven't. I'm just, okay. Not that many of you, but I know quite a lot of you are keen runners. If I were to go tomorrow and try to run a marathon, what would happen to me? Louise is laughing because she knows that it would probably kill me. Okay, but if I were to go out tomorrow and try to run one mile, I could manage that, I think, possibly. I might make it the distance, but then I might collapse and you know, fall in a heap. But if I were to run a mile tomorrow and then a few days later run two miles and build it up and build it up and build it up and increase my distance each day, then a marathon is well within my possible means. I can do that with the right training. I probably have to change my diet and my commitment. And uh, these are all disciplines just like spiritual disciplines. So if you want to be able to do something, you need to put the effort in and practice. Timothy um, is told by Paul, every part of scripture is God-breathed, useful one way or another for showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way. Through the word we are put together and shaped up for the tasks that God has called for us. That's from the message. And so how should we read the Bible? What I do is probably very different to what you do or what you might want to do or what the person beside you does. Uh, The thing is, is that we all come from different places, different personalities, different starting points. So for some of us, we might be bored stiff of reading the Bible. We might find there's no life in it when we read it. Some of us, it might be a struggle to even open the book in the first place. For some of us, it might be that, you know, success would look like God speaking to me through the words that I'm reading and actually being able to apply it to my life. So we're probably all at different stages. And so um, I would have asked this stage, and they're in the, 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 the sheet, a series of questions that might help you narrow down where you're at at the moment and therefore where to go next. Um, I did, however, quite like this slide. You can read that. The Bible is meant to be bread for daily use, not cake for special occasions. Quite like that one. That was good. Now, the thing is, it's a little bit like eating a cream egg. How do you eat yours? Well, you take the foil off the bottom and you bite through the the thick bit at the bottom of the egg and then you suck out all the the gooey bit inside and then you eat the rest of the chocolate. That's how I do it. Is that how you do it? You see, it's not always the same, is it? Um, The other example that we have in our house is Tonics Mallows. You know Tonics Mallows that you get at Christmas? Louise likes to bash them on her head and then eat them. I like to um, pull off all the top bit, eat the biscuit and then keep the top bit to the end because it's a nice creamy bit. What works for me isn't going to work for the person beside you or for for the next person in the row. It's all going to be different. We're all at different stages and we all need different things. Personality is important. Fitting things into your regular rhythm is important. So if I don't brush my teeth in the morning, it doesn't feel right for the rest of the day. And I don't know if you brush your teeth in the morning, you brush your teeth straight after a meal, if you brush your teeth last thing at night or a combination of all of those things. But if you don't do it when it's right for you, it doesn't work. It doesn't feel right something's not there. If you don't read your Bible in a regular, consistent, and that doesn't mean every day necessarily, but in a regular, consistent way, then it doesn't feel right and you can't grow out of that. Practice makes perfect. If I practice something, I become better at it. However, the ideal of being like Jesus is a perfection that we might not necessarily, while we're alive, ever achieve. But it is an aim to work towards, to be more and more Christ-like each day to be more and more like Jesus. And reading the Bible is one of the most transformational ways you can go about from being here where you're at the moment 
to being like Jesus later in time. And I was going to finish with a little story, um, a little parable, the, the, the parable of the foolish builder and the wise builder. And uh, I'll just read a little bit of for you. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. That's the parable Jesus uses to end his Sermon on the Mount, his seminal teaching. It comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's expounded all of his beliefs and greatest teaching. And he says, those who do not put this into practice will be like that foolish man. Both men heard what Jesus had said. You read the text. Both men have heard what Jesus has said. But it's the one who doesn't put it into practice is the one who will struggle. And finally, um, Paul was talking a few weeks ago about sunflowers. I wasn't here, so I've heard this kind of second, third, fourth hand uh, through the week. But I was going to finish by saying be postured like that sunflower, because apparently that sunflower is always facing the sun. Even if it's a cloudy day, it continues to face where the sun is. And in the morning, it returns back to where the sun's going to rise from so that it's ready. We need to posture ourselves to be just like that sunflower, to be turned towards God, ready for him to speak to us through his word. Let's pause, take a breath. I've rattled through that very quickly in my Northern Irish accent. Um, and uh, it took 10 minutes, so well done. <laughs> what I wanted to, to um, spend the rest of our time together talking about is sort of related, but not close enough to what I've been talking about. Um, and I felt God was, was asking me to share a little bit from Deuteronomy and um, a particular verse in chapter 32. So none of this will be on the sheets anymore. You can put them to one side, read them when you get home. Uh, but the book of Deuteronomy is a really interesting book. It is a, effectively a retelling of everything that's happened from the exodus from Egypt with Moses and God's people, all the way up through their wilderness journeys for 40 years to the point where they're in Moab, they're on the, the cusp of the Jordan River, and they're just about to go enter, uh, enter into the promised land, the land that they've been promised by God. And Moses is, in Deuteronomy, goes through a whole series of reminding the people what has happened, reminding them what the laws are that they have to follow, and then he has a whole series of warnings, effectively, Warnings of how if you don't do what the law commands, then woe will become to you. And so we're at this point, um, Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 32, and we're going to look particularly at verse 11. In 32, Moses breaks into song. He starts singing to the people who are gathered. And in the song of Moses, he, he speaks as though God is speaking to the people of Israel. And down in verse 11, it says this. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. That's it. What does that mean? That's what I want to talk about today. That's what God has been putting on my heart over the last 40 hours to share about. About an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. And to do that, I need to tell you a little bit about how eagles mate and how eagles bring up their young. So a little bit of biology in the church this morning. 
Um, but eagles are really interesting birds. They're, they're one of the biggest species of birds there are. They, they build really huge nests very high up. And they've got quite strange mating rituals. There's one particular breed of eagle, a type of um, golden eagle, where they mate by um, courting one another, the male and the female bird. The female bird grabs a stick, soars up really high, and drops the stick to see if the male can catch it. And this happens over and over again. And if the male drops the stick, she moves on. Pretty tough, isn't it? She moves on. They're not going to mate. But if it's successful and things lead to things and other things happen and they have a brood of eggs, the the pair of them come together to make the nest. And they start by building a nest probably about as wide as from here to the end of the stage. They start with very thorny sticks the thorniest they can find, a whole layer of those to go on the outside of the nest because that is to protect what's in the nest from what is outside the nest. And we're on a ledge that isn't just a few feet off the ground, but we're on cliff sides, which are very, very high up in the mountains. And they build this nest, and then they line the nest with thinner and smaller and and softer twigs and moss, and then finally a, a bed of leaves. And then on top of that, they pluck out the, the down feathers from under their wings and from their breast. And they line that so it's lovely and cosy inside the nest. And then they have their, their chicks that hatch from their eggs. They, they look after them. The female guards the nest. The male does the hunting, brings back the food. And they raise the young together. And imagine, I want you just to put yourself in the position of those eaglets, those baby eagles in that nest. Your entire world is here. There is nothing but sky above you and twigs and moss around you. You're about that high, you cannot see over the edge of this nest. That is your entire world. And it is incredibly comfortable and safe. However, when the babies are big enough that they need to start being moved out of the nest, the mother does something called stirring up the nest. So she reaches down with her beak and all those twigs that were on the outside, she pulls them through the middle so that they're on the inside instead. And all those nice soft feathers get thrown out of the nest. And it suddenly, for those chicks, becomes not a very happy place anymore. It becomes uncomfortable. It becomes no longer the the lovely place where they grew up and where they started their days. Their world is being changed in quite an interesting dynamic. They're being forced to be uncomfortable by their loving parents. The next stage is that the mother takes a chick, grabs it in her talons, and goes flying with the chick. Now, again, put yourself in that position. You're you're flying around, miles in the air, grabbed in these talons by your parents in in a place where you've never been before, flying, soaring through the sky. If your entire world was inside that nest, uh, now you can see rivers, mountains, trees, all sorts of things. A whole new world has been opened up to you. And that's when mum drops the chick. That's when mum drops the chick. Don't forget, what is dad's job? He's got to catch it. Dad's job is to catch the chick. And the way he does that is he swoops down underneath where the chick is falling and he catches the chick on his pinions, his shoulder blades, the broadest part of his back. And this happens not once, but over and over and over again. And they take it in turns to do this. Whereas they take a chick and they effectively throw it out of the, the nest or lift it out and drop it and catch it again. Now, the whole reason they do this is because if that chick had stayed in the nest as it got older and older, it would never learn that there was a world out there that was made for it. It would never learn that there was uh, horizons beyond what it could see in that nest. 
when it's taken out of the nest and dropped, it's probably the most frightening thing that's ever happened. Imagine parachuting without a parachute. That's exactly what it would be like. But if it didn't learn what it was like to fall through the air, it would never think, what are these things for that I've got? It's how the chick learns to fly. And eventually, after a lot of trial and error, quite possibly, it becomes better and better at controlling its descent, using its wings to, to create drag, and then eventually being able to create lift and be able to fly like its parent. And so eventually, this chick has learned how to fly. From being in this nest where it is soft and comfortable and surrounded by safety, it is cast out into the big bad world so that it can mature to be an adult just like its parents. And um, the original meaning... Of, of this verse, when you look in the context of Deuteronomy, is about the journey of the Israelites from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. So the nest is like when they were in Egypt. For them, it was comfortable. It was a comfortable place to be. They had everything they needed in their community, but it wasn't where God intended them to be. So Moses was sent to stir up the nest, and he did that quite dramatically through going to, to uh, Pharaoh let my people go, plagues, drama, mass exodus, Passover, all that is the stirring up of the nest. The people then, instead of going to the promised land immediately, they end up spending, because of their own lack of faith, 40 years journeying around the desert, the Sinai Peninsula, somewhere in that area. And that is their learning to fly experience. That is their being taken out of the nest and their free falling. There's a whole period where they don't listen to God. They grumble at Moses. They provided what they need, but yet they still find fault every time and every stage. And they spend 40 years going through this process of learning to essentially fly like that eagle is learning how to fly. And when we get to this stage, they are right on the cusp of entering the promised land. They're not quite there yet. They have quite a distance still to go. They have an obstacle still in their way. But Moses knows that he's not going to be journeying with him into the promised land by this stage. He's never going to make it that far. And so he's preparing the people to pass on to Joshua so that he can lead them into the promised land. But what it might mean for us is something slightly different. It might mean that today we can apply this to ourselves in a sort of faith development type model. So I don't know where you're at today, but it might be that you're in a comfortable place. It might be that everything's going well, that everything feels safe. And everything feels very comfortable. That's great, but I've got some bad news. It's not going to stay like that way necessarily. God might want to take you from that comfortable place and move you into a stage where he can stretch you, where he can test you, where he can teach you new things and show you new horizons. Because if you stay where you are, that might not necessarily be the good for you in the long term. It might be that you need to step out from that nest. It might be that you're here today and you already feel like you're in free fall, like life is just going downhill faster than you can cope with and that there is a lot of things going wrong, a lot of personal tragedies or in your family perhaps or illness. And it might just feel like I'm falling and at some point I'm going to crash and hit the deck and that's the end. Well, if that's where you're at today, just remember that that chick isn't being tortured by its parents, it's being tested and God will always catch you before you hit rock bottom. Just like those parents swooped on to catch that chick on their pinions, on the strongest part of their back. It could be like that, that he's just waiting to catch you when it's ready, when the time is ready. And if you're in that position where you're on God's back and you're flying and it's an amazing experience, that must be the closest it must feel for that chick to be to their parents, to be flying on their back, between their wings, 
probably feeling their heartbeat, the heat. That is such a close place to be between you and your heavenly father at that time. It's all part of that training experience that even though you might be falling, he will, kif- he will catch you and lift you back up to where you belong. Or maybe you feel like you're already in that place of maturity, that you are an adult, that you have, have made it to where God wants you to be and you're in that stage of life. Well, what is your role now? It is to train the next generation, whatever that might look like. It is to have that brood and it's to put them through the same process that you have learned. And we put all of this context of this story of um, stirring up of nests and of free-falling eaglets into the context of reading the Bible and being with Jesus. It's all part of that transformation that I explained in my first sermon. It's all part of being transformed by Jesus from where you are to where you want to be and where he wants you to be. So why don't I invite Chris and the band back up and uh, we'll, um, we'll move into time of ministry.